please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 14. And you'll find the sermon scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Though we have indicated in your worship folder uh, to begin the reading in verse 18, I would actually like to begin at one verse prior in verse 17. And we'll read through the end of chapter 14 of Genesis. And then uh, before we are seated, we will turn uh, to the New Testament epistle uh, to the Hebrews and read uh, a rather lengthy portion of uh, chapter 7 that gives some wonderfully helpful uh, insights into the Genesis 14 account. Anyway, shall we stand now uh, for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, uh, inspired word? First from Genesis 14, uh, verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. And then turn to the New Testament uh, epistle uh, to the Hebrews. And there we will read uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 19. Hebrews 7, 1 and following. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father 
when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it all. You may be seated. Well, at this time, uh, little ones are dismissed to the nursery, and let us uh, pray one more time, beloved, and ask God's blessing uh, on his word. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, uh, we come before you and ask with all of our hearts that you would bless uh, this uh, hour of worship, but especially now, this portion of the reading and preaching of your holy word. Uh, Bless it to our hearing that our uh, hearts might believe and that our uh, lives might be ready uh, to obey all that you have said to us and help us to understand, O Lord, what it means for our faith. We do love you and we thank you. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, we looked together at the rather lengthy and detailed uh, account in Genesis 14, the first 16 verses of the secular history, so-called, as as I called it, uh, concerning the war between the kings of the east, uh, led by King Cheddar Laomer, and the kings of the south, uh, of the cities of the Jordan Plain, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's worthwhile to observe, and we will come back to this idea, that the name of God is not mentioned throughout that whole initial account of verses 1 through 17, indeed not until verse 18, when we are uh, finally introduced to Melchizedek. This Melchizedek, uh, introduced in the Bible, Uh, here for the first time in verse 18, was king of Salem. When you hear Salem, uh, you might also hear something uh, like the word shalom, uh, the Hebrew word for peace. It means peace. Uh, It is the ancient name for Jerusalem. Psalm 76, 2 indicates that. Uh, In Salem, that is Jerusalem, is the tabernacle of God. So he was king in Jerusalem, 
long before David, the Israelite, ever was. He is king of peace, and his name means king of righteousness. Melech, Hebrew word for king. Zadok, Hebrew word for righteousness. King of peace, as Hebrew says, and king of righteousness. He was also a priest, the first one mentioned in the Bible. He was not, uh, therefore, merely a priest, nor merely a king, but a priest king, or a kingly priest, you might say. Both offices being united in one person. And this very important fact will prompt David in Psalm 110 to speak of a greater Melchizedek to come, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who will unite in one person not only the offices of king and of priest, but the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. He will declare to us the word of God. He will rule over us by his word and spirit. And he will offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and make everlasting intercession for his people. In Genesis, therefore, Melchizedek stands as a type of Jesus Christ. He is king of peace and king of righteousness and unites the office of king and priest in ancient Jerusalem, some 2,000 years before our Lord. And when the book of Hebrews says that he was without father and mother, without genealogy, it may mean that in a book given over to genealogies, this man appeared on the scene without any such notice. And this fact may further typify the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. In Genesis, he is a priest, Melchizedek is. But since he preceded Abram, and therefore preceded Levi, he was not a Levitical priest. He was a priest of a different order, one that preceded and one that was greater than that of Levi and therefore then of the law. What David prophesies in Psalm 110 is that the Levitical order of the priesthood would have to be done away with before a king priest like Melchizedek could emerge. For Christ is our great high priest forever. He's not a Levitical priest, but a priest like Melchizedek. It is all very stunning, the honor bestowed on this man. It shows the greatness of this ancient man, that he was superior to Abram, that his priestly order and not that of the law typified that of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our great high priest. But there's something else here not to be missed. Melchizedek is certainly an indication, is he not, that God had his people elsewhere and not solely in the family of Abram. Up to now, we have largely been functioning under the impression that knowledge of the Most High God was restricted to Abram 
and his immediate family. And here comes Melchizedek. Obviously a monotheist, a worshiper of the Most High God, the one true and living God. A fact, by the way, that led the ancient Jews to assert that he was a descendant of Shem, of Noah's son. This cannot be proven. The Bible doesn't tell us everything, only what we need to know. But it suggests that there was a lot more going on in the world concerning the kingdom of God than we have a record of in the word of God. Imagine the scene. Abram is likely exhausted, returning from battle, having rescued Lot. The king of Sodom has come out to meet him with an offer of his own. Abraham is clearly now being recognized as a great and powerful man of the ancient Near East. And into this picture walks a stranger, Melchizedek, who just so happens to be a fellow believer, a spiritual brother to Abram, and a source of tremendous spiritual encouragement and refreshment to him. God was at work in the world, unexpectedly, in ways that we were previously unaware of. He was calling his children, establishing his kingdom, preserving a witness for himself in the world. I don't know if you have ever had that experience when you meet a fellow believer rather unexpectedly, perhaps on a trip, maybe sitting next to you on a plane, maybe in another state or in another country. And there is that immediate connection, that sense that we are brothers and sisters in God's family. Even though we have never met before, we immediately feel that spiritual intimacy of kindred hearts. There's wonderful encouragement in that. Strength for what confronts us. And that's what we're praying for when our young people, for example, go off to college or go off to the military, that no matter how challenging life becomes, and no matter how difficult the battles they face, they will have Christian fellowship to support them and to guide them. It must have seemed like the last thing that would happen to Abraham that day, to meet a brother. But what a difference it made. How it buoyed his spirit and strengthened his heart. You know, sometimes when we emerge victorious from battles, we are faced just then with deepest temptations. Melchizedek appears to help Abram to be faithful. We are told that he brought out bread and wine. It's probably ancient shorthand for uh, some kind of a royal banquet. And it's a reminder, beloved, that our simple communion meal that we will celebrate today of bread and wine, of bread and the cup, is an anticipatory meal of a great feast to come. 
a great banquet that we shall have in heaven with our Lord and with all the saints of every age. Remember, too, that the king of Sodom was there, but he brought nothing to show his gratitude. Two kings, one of Salem, the other of Sodom. One a true believer, the other a pagan. One bringing a banquet, the other brings nothing but trouble and temptation. And Melchizedek proceeds to offer words of blessing, verse 19. He blesses Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blesses God most high, who gave Abram the victory. What does it mean, beloved? But that the God of Abram is the only God there is. He's the creator and possessor, the maker, as we confess this morning, of heaven and earth, of all things. He's the God of all the kings and all the peoples mentioned in this chapter, though they do not confess his name. He's the creator of heaven and earth, the possessor of the universe. He made it all. He rules it all. It is all his. Even those who do not acknowledge him. And now we come to understand the power by which Abram was able to rescue Lot and have victory, as we saw last time, over the armies of the east. Something, as I mentioned at the outset, that we were not explicitly told earlier in the chapter. It was God most high, Melchizedek says, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, yes, it can be said that Abram was brave and courageous and decisive and a man of action. But now we find the secret. The victory is the Lord's. It is his battle. The deliverance is his. And all glory goes to him. Another way of saying it is that there is no possible way in Abram's own strength that he and his 318 fighting men would have been victorious. The battle belongs to the Lord. He gives the victory. If Abram was a warrior, he was God's warrior. If he fought, he fought in the strength of the Lord and by faith. And Abram, in response, gave him a tenth, a tithe of everything. This is the first mention, as I said, in the Bible of a tithe or of a tenth being paid as an act of religious worship or devotion, long, of course, by many centuries before the giving of the Jewish law. It is Abram's idea not Melchizedek's. Abram offers it. Melchizedek does not demand it. It is a gift, not a bill being paid. And all or everything refers to the booty, the spoils of victory, including the goods and the people 
that Abram had brought back from battle. All that he had taken from the four kings, it must have been substantial. But notice, as soon as Abram encounters Melchizedek and hears him praise God most high, as soon as he recognizes that he is in the presence of a fellow believer and a superior at that, and upon being reminded that the battle uh, that he won, that victory was given to him by God, what is his first reaction? It is to be grateful, to be thankful. It is to give generously and to acknowledge that the God of heaven and earth was his deliverer and his savior. And notice the difference between the two kings as evidenced by their words. The first words of Melchizedek were, Blessed be Abram of God most high. The first words of the king of Sodom, Give me. Give me the persons. Two entirely different men. Two entirely different interests. And we read further in verse 23 of Abram's surrender of his right to the spoils of war, of that to which he was entitled, saying to the king of Sodom, quote, I will take nothing from you, from a thread to a sandal strap, I will take nothing that is yours. For, he says, I have raised my hand, and here it is God's covenant name, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. You know, we've said uh, many times, beloved, that Abram is the man of faith, uh, par excellence, that he's the father of all the faithful, of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we have seen that that does not mean, of course, that he was without sin, that there was never any lapse or moral failure, but that the great trajectory of his life and the transcendent characteristic of his life is that he was a man who trusted in God, who preferred God to this world, who walked with God and trusted in God's promises day by day. And here we have before us this morning an account of the further development and witness of Abram's faith. And we're able to see it in at least two ways. The first way it can be seen is by his reaction when it was made clear to him that the deliverance over his enemies had been given to him by God. And now, remarkably, we are able to see the whole point, spiritually speaking, of the secular history of the war between the kings and the reason why, under God, Lot was caught up into that battle. And it is this, so that it could be understood by Abram that deliverance was God's deliverance, that the battle was won by God's power, that the victory was not accomplished by Abram's bravery or strength or fighting men, 
but that it was given to him. That God Most High is the great victor, the warrior, the champion who fights his people's battles on their behalf. And dear friend, this is where there is a very obvious connection to every believer. The believer in Jesus Christ faces battles and struggles and warfare every day, but not primarily against fleshly enemies, not against material forces, so much as spiritual ones. Our battle, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And therefore, the apostle says, the believer in Jesus Christ is to take up and to put on the whole armor of God. We believers sometimes operate under the mistaken notion that our enemies are primarily the enemies with skin on them. People, human beings, politicians, elected officials, neighbors, those of flesh and blood. But no, the Bible says, our far greater concern, the real battle with which we should be concerned is the battle against those dark, evil, spiritual forces in heavenly places, those that are in opposition to the kingdom of God and who have made it their set purpose and desire to tempt Christians and to bring about their downfall if they might and to make Christians become ineffective in our walk with Jesus Christ. And it is those unseen forces, those invisible powers, those demonic spirits, those ones that you and I are so often unaware and ignorant of, against whom we wrestle. And so passages like this one depict for us the true enemies that we are up against and the battles that we fight every day. There was a great uh, epic poem written by an early Christian uh, author named Prudentius, uh, in, written in the 4th century. Uh, the poem was titled uh, Psychomachia, which means translated spiritual warfare. As far as we can tell, it was the first such epic Christian poem, and it was written in Latin verse. It was a retelling of the stories of the Bible, but it was more than that. It was an allegory of the life of the Christian soul. It was the, the bunyan, the pilgrim's progress of the fourth, fourth century. And he began his account with a lesson of how Christians can rid themselves of double-mindedness and obtain purity of heart. And he began with the life of Abraham. And he begins that account with the story of Abram's rescue of his nephew Lot here in Genesis 14. Just as Abram, inspired by the love of God, 
unsheathed his sword to put to flight the haughty kings of the north and to deliver Lot. So Christians, with the help of Christ, can free themselves from the appetites and lusts and passions that hold them in bondage. What a text. It illustrates the theme of spiritual warfare. This is what the Christian life is like. This is what the life of faith looks like. Trusting in God day by day. Christ giving the victory. Christ overcoming the world. There are enemies here. Battles to be fought. A victory to be won. And here is the key point, a victory that is won by faith in God or by faith in Jesus Christ. That lesson was hidden, the first 17 verses. But then Melchizedek appears. The veil is lifted. And now we begin to see the person who stood behind these events, the divine person who orchestrated them and brought them to their conclusion. That is why Melchizedek's confession of faith in God and that of Abram himself is so important. You would have thought that all the kings were the most important characters in the story. You would have thought that until it is made clear that they are not and that the battle has been won by faith in the Lord. And what is faith? In its most basic sense, its most fundamental meaning, faith is to look outside of oneself, to look to another, and to trust in the truthfulness and faithfulness and power and grace of someone else. It is the credit and belief that a man or a woman places in the reliability or capability, or trustworthiness of another. And so when we say that Abram won this battle by faith, we mean that he won it by putting his trust and his reliance and his dependence on another person, namely in God, to win it for him. That's why Melchizedek's words are so important. And that's what his words make so clear. And that, incidentally, is what a true Christian friend always does. Points us not to ourselves, but to the Lord and to his faithfulness to us. And so, beloved, when we say that we have faith in Jesus Christ, what we mean by that is that we look outside of ourselves to another. We look to Jesus we believe his word is true, his promise is reliable, that his death on the cross is sufficient to save our sinful souls from death. It means that we're counting on Jesus to keep his promises to us, to deliver us from our enemies, to save us from the death that we deserve. You know, when the believer appears before God in heaven, he will still be living by faith. 
And he will not point to the good works that he has done. But he will say there, I am counting on Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm believing in Jesus. That his promise is true. That he's vanquished all my foes, including sin and death and hell. My battle is won. Not by myself. But by faith in the Lord. Now there's one more way, briefly this morning. A second way we could see Abram's faith in what he did. It's in the aftermath of the battle when he was met by these two kings. He's returning as a conqueror. He's confronted with a choice between two men. Two men who represent very different principles. Abram embraces Melchizedek. And Abram rejects the offer of the king of Sodom. And that is a demonstration of his faith and his trust in the promise promise of God. It's a stunning fact, and I think it's an often missed or overlooked fact, that the king of Sodom appeared first, before Melchizedek. Again, great temptation often follows immediately upon great victory. But that both kings, both men, were present, it seems, for this same conversation. Belief and unbelief. Faith and sight. The invisible and the visible. Two ways of living right next to one another are always present before us at the same time. The world and God himself. And every moment, you and I must choose. Melchizedek brought a meal. Abram gladly took part. Melchizedek blessed the name of God Most High, credited the deliverance to the Lord. Abraham agreed and responded by blessing and thanking God. And almost instinctively, impulsively, overflowed in generosity and gave gifts of gratitude. That's what faith does. It recognizes God as the giver of everything. God is the strength in our battles. God is the victor in our struggles. God is the savior of our souls. God is the destroyer of sin and of death. And the heart of faith overflows with gratitude and shows itself forth in tangible gifts. Yes, of money, but ultimately of a life. My dear friend, I trust that you are giving faithfully to the Lord and that you are giving as Abram gave, not resentfully, not begrudgingly or stingily, but with a heart of faith that recognizes everything we have is from God. Because he has saved us from sin and death and hell, we can never, ever, ever give enough to truly show him how thankful we are. So behold, Abram, the man of faith and the giver of tithes. Now, corresponding to this, of course, is Abram's unwillingness to receive anything from the evil king of Sodom. 
who was the king of that exceedingly wicked and sinful place. For Abram had raised his hand to God Most High. He had put his trust in the Lord. He had come to believe that God would bless him, fulfill his promises to him, and give him everything he truly needed. He refuses, therefore, to spoil his life or his victory with goods from the king of Sodom. Beloved, that is faith. He could have had more. More stuff. More money. More goods. He could have become even more rich. It was all before him, being offered to him. But from whom? What was the source? Abram walking by faith and trusting in God would not permit himself to receive money and gifts in an inappropriate way from an inappropriate source, though standing right before him, presenting itself to him. Oh, beloved, some things are more important than money. Much, much more important than money. He will not let the wicked king of Sodom play any part in this victory. He will not give that wicked man any occasion to say he had made Abram rich. All the glory must go to God. All the gratitude must be to him. The spoils must not come from Sodom, from this world. The blessing came from God through Melchizedek. And Abram, living by faith, can discern that and knows that he must not allow himself to be despoiled by Sodom's riches. That will come with strings attached. That will come with future obligations and associations to Sodom, which Abram is unwilling to make. And so it goes. Money comes with strings attached. It spoils. It perverts often. It leads to sin. But the contrast could not be more clear. Melchizedek offers, gives, blesses, praises the worldling demands. And Abram tithes and doesn't ask, what may I take, but what can I offer? And dear friend, it's not always easy to tell. How can we know if a blessing is truly from God? Here may be a test. If we call something in our lives a blessing, a provision from the Lord, can it be explained in no other way than from God? It is miraculous. It is spiritual. It is enduring. Abraham was simply not willing to say that the best that Sodom had to offer was a blessing from God. 
And so it is with this life of faith. It is to credit God with every victory, to receive good gifts from his hand with gratitude and generosity. And yes, it is to reject the enticing offers from the world of sin. Oh, beloved, I have seen it so many times. There are things that bring you down. There are things that lead you away from Christ. It is for some money. It is for some attachments to the things of this world. It is a certain relationship that is established. And it brings you down. And it separates you from the lover of your soul. Marvelous lessons indeed for all who walk by faith. This morning we recited, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the ungodly, for better is a day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Well, would you rather have fellowship with Melchizedek or with the king of Sodom? Would you rather have the riches of Christ or all the things this world has to offer? Faith knows the answer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this marvelous chapter of Scripture. So many lessons to be learned. Bless us, dear Father, that we might be men and women and children of faith who walk with you by faith day by day who love you and not this world and consider the treasure of Christ the greatest by far. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.